You're listening to Country Music Success Stories featuring Music City mentor J.C. Don Valeris. Now, here's your host, Caddy O'Terry. The man you are about to meet has had 21 number one songs at Country, and Billboard magazine places him at number 87 on its list of the top 100 country artists of all time. I'd met the one and only T.G. Shepard briefly when we interviewed his incredibly talented wife, Kelly Lang, and I was so impressed with his demeanor. I don't know how he does it, but somehow T.G. manages to be both humble and larger than life, all at the same time. Maybe that's because he lives the advice he was given by his mentor, the king of rock and roll. The greatest advice Elvis ever gave me is what I applied to my life. He said, if you ever forget where you came from, you're never going to get where you want to go. Elvis Presley played a pivotal role in the life and career of T.G. Shepard, and he's got so many stories to tell about it. J.C. and I brought homemade cookies just as a way of saying thank you to Kelly and T.G. for welcoming us into their beautiful home. And as we settled in for a chat around their big kitchen table, I started out by congratulating T.G. on his new deal with Time Life for the reissue of nine of his classic albums. What an accomplishment. A beautiful thing has happened to artists in the last few years. If you're fortunate enough to have good representation, artists can get their masters back after so many years now. So one day an attorney called me. He said, you know, you've got a chance to get a lot of your albums back. And I said, you mean own them? So I paid him to reach out and do the paperwork, and we wound up getting our masters back. And now, for the first time, a lot of my earlier albums that weren't, uh, you weren't able to get them digitally. Now you can, you can download those now through Time Live. So it's an exciting new day for me. And your new album, Midnight in Memphis, with the title track written by the one and only Barry Gibb. Who? Who is that? Well, you know, I guess he's the number one songwriter of all time or something, along with Lennon and McCartney. Uh, Barry is just, gosh, uh, I actually met Barry because of Kelly, you know, my wife Kelly Lang, and he's turned into a lifelong friend. I mean, we've known each other now 15, 16 years. We're close. I call him little brother, and he calls me big brother. To have him write the title song of the album, I, I was so honored that I just I titled the album after that song, Midnight Memphis. So call me, call me at the end of your day When the long nights and the city lights have all gone The midnight in Memphis without you. Two songs that honor your dear friend Elvis Presley. Yeah. We're going to talk a lot about him in this interview, sure. but I want to live like Elvis and the day Elvis died. Do you get emotional when you sing songs sure. like that? Oh, gosh. What was it like in the studio singing those songs? <sighs> The memories come flooding back because with the song, I Want to Live Like Elvis, uh, I was there. I lived almost every line in that song with him. One of the writers, Chip Davis and Billy Davis, he said, T.G., you have to record this song. If you don't, no one will because you were there. You lived it. So I heard the song and I said, yeah, I got to do this song. I said, I was there. 
I, I watched him shoot those TV sets out. 57 so, channels and nothing on, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Midnight in Memphis kind of encompasses, you know, the radio show now that I do from there. I'm from Memphis, spent many years there. I've spent a lot of years at Graceland. So it kind of worked out to start the album with an Elvis song and end it with an Elvis song. The, the second Elvis song, The Day Elvis Died, is, uh, I think, like so many people, I was in denial for a lot of years because he was still here with me through movies and photos and articles and his music. And then one day, many years later, I just wept because I realized that I was never going to see him again. I will see him again, but it'll be a while. Let's step back and tell people how you got to where you are today, because this is an incredible story. You dropped out of high school and you ran away from home at 15 years old, to be in music. Did you climb out your bedroom window? Like, what? Yes. You did. I did climb out of my bedroom window, and I had 60 cents in my pocket. So I look around at my, at my life and what I have in my life now, and I really realize that it all started with just 60 cents. Somebody asked me the other day, what do you want to be known for when it's all over? I just want to be known that I may be an inspiration to someone who has a dream. And if you chase it and you believe hard enough, you can achieve part of your dream. You might not get all of the brass ring, but you will get enough of it to be satisfied. If someone young is listening to this and you think you can do it that way, don't do it that way. It was tough. It was scary. It was scary. It was horrifying. But I got through it, and it made me who I am today. You went to Memphis. Your real name, William Browder. Is that how I pronounce it? (laughs) You did too much homework. (laughs) How did you support yourself? You're still a child. You're 15 years old. Well, you just make a dollar wherever you can. There's no food. You really eat whatever you can find. There's actually been nights that I would take part of a sandwich out of a garbage can and eat it to survive. Went to bed a lot of nights hungry, really hungry. Early on, where did you sleep? Wherever you can find Wherever it. you can find a place to a lay safe down. safe place. The greatest place to sleep at that time was to sleep in the doorways of office buildings because there's a breezeway in between the two. The front door, and then there's another door you go through, and it's usually warm in there, or it's cool in there, and you feel safer in there. You're out of the elements. You're always sleepy because you never do sleep well, and you're always hungry because you don't eat well. So it was a very, very difficult time in my life. You met Elvis at a skating rink in Memphis when you were a teenager, an aspiring singer at that time. Take me back to that day you saw him for the first time. I was standing out in front of the roller rink at midnight, and they had cut the lights off, the big sign outside that said Rainbow Terrace Roller Rink. Two or three Cadillacs pull up, and uh, Elvis gets out from behind the wheel of the lead car, walks right over to me with those steel blue eyes, and he said, where are you going? And I, I was in shock. I mean, for God's sakes, Elvis Presley's talking to me? What's the chances of this happening? And I said, well, I'm leaving. They're closing the roller rink up. He said, oh, no, no, they're opening it up for me. And he said, I'm a man short on my team. Will you want to come in and skate with us? And I said, oh, gosh, I I kept looking around. Is he talking to me? And I went in and we skated for several hours. And then after that, he said, uh, I'm hungry. You hungry? And I said, (laughs) those days I was starving. He said, let's go up to Graceland and have a bite to eat. 
So we went up to the house and had the... You got in the Cadillac. Yeah, and got, drove up to the house and um, had the famous peanut butter and banana sandwich talk. And I had kept pinching myself because I knew I was going to wake up at any minute. It was just, it was all going to be a dream, but it wasn't. It, it became reality. He became my friend. Why to this day? I don't know. It was a God thing, mm. most definitely. And uh, we we stayed friends until the day he passed. He uh, was just an incredible friend to me at a time that I needed a friend so badly. It feels like he just somehow knew yeah. that you were a homeless kid in front of a skating rink who was hungry. You know, I, I told my mom many years before that, before my mom and dad divorced, I told my mom, I said, you know, mom, someday I'm going to meet Elvis and he's going to become my friend. And she would say to me, Honey, I don't want you to get your hopes up because the chances of a kid from Humboldt, Tennessee ever meeting Elvis is slim, let alone be his friend. But lo and behold, it happened. I think I welded. I really do. Early on in your career, you worked as a record guy for RCA. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing you brought artists to radio stations. Mm -hmm. That's my background, so I know how this works. On the air for 25 years, I'm guessing you got some stories of artists that you worked with. Oh, gosh, all of them. John Denver, you know, brought John to RCA. He was just singing in the bars in New Orleans. Great songwriter. His career took off like a skyrocket. One of the greatest stories was I was working in a record distributor in Memphis called Hotline Record Distributors, my first job in the record business. And I would pull the records in the warehouse to take to the radio stations. And I was back one day pulling records to take to the pop stations and receptionist. She said, there's a guy up here who wants, wants to play a record. And I said, well, okay, I'll be up in a few minutes. She said, he's real scary looking. I said, really? Why? She said, well, he's got long hair down to his waist and he's just scary. he got a beard. And I said, well, I said, I'll be up in a minute. So I went up in a few minutes and met the guy, and he had on a pair of jeans and dirty sneakers and a sweatshirt and long hair and a beard. I heard his record, and I said, this is incredible. I said, yeah, I'll help you. I said, get in my car, and we'll go down to the radio station. So I put him in the car with me, and there was two other people in the car with us that were with the record company out of Atlanta. We went down to WMPS radio station in Memphis, I walked into my friend Roy Mack, who was the manager of the box tops at that time. I said, I've got this record. It really sounds great. And would you listen to it? And he said, yeah. So uh, he put it on his turntable in between playing another record. And he said, boy, this is great. I'll play it right now. I said, no, no, wait. I said, let us get back in the car. And that way uh, this guy can hear his song on the radio. So we get back in the car and. We were driving in front of the Peabody Hotel, and my friend Roy Mack, the DJ, says, and here's a new song that I heard today that I've just got to play. You're going to be hearing this one a lot. Here's Neil Diamond. What's the chances of that happening? Part of history, right? The very first time a Neil Diamond record was played. Yeah. When you hear yourself on a car radio, you know you've arrived. I mean, really, that is like the... Most incredible feeling. I know when I did it for the first time, it was just amazing to me. Another great story was I was waiting at the airport for an artist to come in to do a concert, and he had a couple of huge records. 
and I'm waiting, and this was before cell phones, and I'm in my car waiting to pick him up and to take him to Memphis State University for his sound check. And the guy comes outside, and he said, there's a phone call for you. I walked into this little airport, private airport, and I answered the phone, and it was the head of the record company. And he said, I know you're there waiting to pick him up, but he's not going to make it. His plane went down, and he has perished. I was waiting to pick up Jim Croce. I was at places in history and the music business that I should never have been, but for some reason I was there. And uh, But there are many more stories just like that. You Those know, are only two. You referenced hearing yourself on the radio mm-hmm. for the very first time. Yeah. What was the song and where were you? It was a song called High School Days. And at that time, I was recording under the name of Brian Stacy. This is back when I thought that I was Paul Anka. I was in the car, and I was listening to WHBQ Radio in Memphis. And I'm sitting there, and I knew they were getting ready to play it. And I turned up the radio, and there it came. There'll be cheers, cheers throughout the years will recall our high school days. Carry books. In the spring, for the one who wears your ring, girl, you tend and orchid on from the lasted until dawn. There'll be cheers, cheers throughout the years. We'll think I've ever been the same since because when that happens to you the first time you only want it to keep happening in your life and boy have I been lucky in my life to have heard myself on the radio a few times we learn something from every job we have what did you learn from being in the record business that you have brought with you as a singer as a performer as a recording artist I learned that the odds of making it are very great I mean, it's a big business. It's competitive. But I learned from working uh, as a record promo man, I learned the lingo of the business and how to communicate with radio people. So therefore, when it comes time to promote my own records, I knew how to do it. I'd already gone to school and I'd gotten my degree. You know how important it is to be friends with the program you director. Better believe you it. know that it's good a good idea to call the music director and say, Thanks for playing Absolutely. my song. Absolutely. It it's all part of it. I also learned from the record business that there is not a lot of room for ego because I would work with a lot of artists that had big egos. Okay. They were difficult to work with. Very hard. And their careers wouldn't last very long because of the ego because i think it can be taken from you just as quickly as it's given to you if your ego gets in the way so i learned to be accessible to radio be nice be kind be thankful it paid off that's what i learned from the record side and applied it to my career 
while you were working at RCA, you were also signed to a record deal yourself. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of like a conflict of interest, right? So you come up with the name T.G. Shepard. How did Elvis find out about this? Well, you know, I changed my name because I didn't want to lose my job at RCA. And I was signed by Barry Gordy at Motown. They just started a record division in Nashville. So I thought, well, I will pick uh, another name to record under, and that way I can keep working for RCA as Bill Browder. So my first record came out and went to number one so quick, and Elvis would run around Graceland singing the song. And it would freak me out to hear him somewhere in the house or sitting in the movie theater just break into the chorus of the song. I'd go, oh, my How did this God. song go? Do you remember? There's a devil in the bottle. And Elvis loved to sing that chorus. It just freaked me out. So one day, I walked in the back door of Graceland, and Elvis is sitting in the jungle room with his feet propped up on the coffee table. And when I hit the back door, I heard, Bill? And I said, yes, sir. He said, you know, you could have told me you were that shepherd guy singing that song on the radio that I love. I said, Elvis, I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't tell you because I was afraid I'd lose my job at RCA. He said, you fool. Don't you know that I am RCA? (laughs) And he was the biggest selling artist we had. So I really didn't have a problem, but I just was a little afraid I'd lose my job. So that's how Elvis found out. You just dropped the name Barry Gordy. Did you ever meet him? Oh, gosh, I was in the studio. Tell me what he was like. His voice is very high speaking. He, he, He talks really high like this. I didn't meet him until after I'd had a couple of number one records, and I'm in the studio recording, and he walks in. He said, I'm Barry Gordy. And I said, I know. He was just one of the geniuses of our business. Could he really recognize talent yes, when he heard it? Yes. There's only a few people in this world that are gifted like that. And he's one of them. Uh, Clive Davis is another one who is so gifted. Barry Gordy walked in and we spent the afternoon just kind of hanging out in, in the studio. And then I never saw him again after that. But I did meet him. At some point, Elvis decides that he's going to buy you a tour bus (laughs) so that you can take your career to the next level. Tell me that story. Well, we're in the small jet star. It seats maybe six people. Tiny jet that's parked next to the big jet, the Lisa Marie at Graceland now. And he had just bought that plane. And he called me up and he said, I want to take you to Love Field, Dallas-Fort Worth, and show you what I'm building. I'm building a big airliner called the Lisa Marie. I said, I'd love to go. Well, we're about 20, 30,000 feet in this little jet, and we're sitting knee to knee. And he looked up at me and he said, by the way, I bought you a bus today. I said, you bought me a bus? He said, sure did. It'll be here tomorrow when we get back. And I said, oh, my God. I said, Elvis, I don't need a bus. I don't even have a band yet. He said, well, now, look, I don't pay for the bus, but I ain't paying for no damn band. <laughs> he just laughed. But that's how it happened. He told me a story, and I haven't told this many times. He said, I remember when I first started out that we would travel in two cars. My dad would would be behind us, and he would carry either the bass that Bill Black would play uh, on top of the car, or if we could get it into the car and stick the end of it out the window, we would. And then we would carry the drums in our car, and he said, I remember we would travel through a big city 
and Dad would get lost in the car behind us. And we always lived in fear that he wouldn't show up with the instrument in time for the show. He said, so now you don't have to worry about that. You are self-contained, and you'll have your own bus to put everything in. So it was a great gift. Do you think that he was also trying to push you in that direction? Yes. Of, Here's your tour bus. Now you got to go get your band. Yeah, I do believe that. Somebody asked me one day, is that the greatest gift that Elvis ever gave you was the bus? I said, no. The gift it gave me was confidence because I kept thinking if he believed in me enough to buy me a tour bus, then I need to really work hard and not let him down. So I did, and I think pushing forward and working hard, the gift of the bus gave me the confidence, and that, that kind of made it happen for me. We just interviewed Larry Strickland, mm-hmm. and I heard that he was your bus driver. <laughs> He's the guy that Elvis sent to go buy me a bus. Elvis took a blank check and signed it and gave it to J.D. and Larry Strickland and said, go buy T.G. a bus. They went to North Carolina and found me a bus, and then they filled in the amount Larry was the guy that the day that Elvis gave me the bus, he called me and I went out to Graceland the next day after we'd gotten back from Dallas late that night or early the next morning. And Elvis loved to be do everything like fanfare, like a big buildup. Wanted everybody to come out to the backyard, the back lawn. And so we were all standing out in the back lawn and he whistled and he had, he had pulled the bus in behind the barn. And here come the bus. Here comes the here bus. Here come the bus. And I got up on the bus, and Elvis and I took my bus to my house. I am told that you are a true showman and an entertainer. What are the key ingredients to being a great entertainer? Stand me up in front of an audience. What's your goal? Connect with the people. Go out to them. I get out in the crowd with the people. I love to shake their hands and let them know how much I appreciate them being there. I think a true showman is a person that doesn't just do the show for the crowd. You do it for yourself. And when the performer is loving what they're doing and enjoying themselves, the audience enjoys it with you because they see that you're into it. And so therefore, if you're into your show, the audience will be into the show with you. You had just been with Elvis at Graceland the day before he died. Yeah. How did you find out about his death? And what was your day like? Oh, it was horrific. Um, I'd gotten back to Nashville from being at Graceland the night before because they were all leaving out that day uh, on tour. And so uh, I got back to Nashville, and I was standing in the office of my manager, Jack Johnson, and um, the receptionist said, uh, J.D. Sumner's on the phone. And I knew something was wrong because J.D. Sumner had never called me before. And I knew that Elvis, his health was not great. He just didn't look healthy. He was very overweight at the time. And so somehow I just had this premonition. Mm-hmm. So I pick up the phone and I said, J.D.? And uh, he said, T.G.? I said, yeah. I said, this is not good, is it? He said, no, he's gone. He left us this afternoon. We found him after lunch. So I was back in Nashville. And as I said earlier, I was in denial for a long time. 
because he was still here with us musically with his records and his movies. So I think I was in shock that day because I was besieged with people. They were reaching out to anyone who knew him to get a quote and to tell stories about his life. And so that's why J.D. had called me. He said, you're going to be getting a lot of phone calls from people. And he was warning me of the wave that was coming, and, man, it came. Did you play a role in his funeral at all? No. I only started going to funerals again, thanks to Kelly, my wife. I have a a thing about not going and seeing people uh, like that. I tend to want to remember them the last time I saw them. Because that's what sticks in my mind the rest of my life. To walk by an open casket to pay homage to someone, I can't do that. It, it just, it's too horrific for me. I wanted to go, yeah. but I knew that it was going to be a media frenzy, which it was. It was just pandemonium. And I just chose to not go. I had already said goodbye in, in my heart. 21 number one songs, eight (laughs) consecutive number one songs. I am sure that your songs are like your babies. Mm -hmm. Which is your favorite one? You would think it would be the the first number one, and and although that was important. There are certain ones that I enjoy. It's easier on my ear than other other songs. And there are certain songs that I enjoy in concert more than others. Um, Slow Burn is one of my favorite songs because it was produced by Jim Ed Norman, who worked with the Eagles and did a lot of great records on the Eagles. I love story songs, and country music is synonymous to stories and melodies. Do You Want to Go to Heaven is written by Curly Putman. It's still one of those great story songs that still holds up after all these years. So that's, that's a couple. You flip on the radio and you say to yourself, I wish I wrote that song, or I wish I recorded that song. Is there something that just makes you feel that way when you listen to the radio? Sure. What is it? I love the song, Sunday Morning Coming Down, uh, Chris Christopherson. One of the great written songs, and also Bobby Braddock, who wrote He Stopped Loving Her Today. Wow, great song. I have adopted another song that I love so much because it was written by the same guy that wrote Last Cheater's Wall, Sonny Throgmorton, a song called Middle-Aged Crazy, which Jerry Lee Lewis recorded. So it, it's just a great story song. Those are just, it's not any one song, it's two or three songs that I really, really love hearing. And speaking of radio, you are the host of Elvis Radio mm-hmm. on Sirius. So we got to have a disc jockey conversation, you and I. <laughs> How much do you love doing that show? You know, I enjoy it a lot because, again, I have gone to school in the business for so long and have been able to connect the dots to a lot of friends who are famous people. And they've all come to my rescue and been my guest on my show I mean, from Barry Gibb to Olivia Newton-John to Lionel Richie to Charlie Daniels, Kid Rock. I mean, you name it, Larry the Cable Guy. Or It's really, during COVID this past year, it has enabled me to have something to do when I couldn't go tour. And being involved with a radio show, I am still involved with Elvis. I still feel like sometimes he's sitting right there next to me. Uh, But to be able to do the show every Friday from 2 to 6 Central 
is a, is a real honor uh, because there's a lot of Elvis fans out there that hopefully are country fans too. So it, it's been a it's been a great journey for me so far, and I, I hope to continue it. Let's talk about the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. <laughs> I got involved with that song many years ago and, and, and wrote part of it. Uh, I was a spokesman for, for Folgers Coffee for years for the Waking Up Tour. We took Folgers from the number three coffee to the number one coffee in the, in the world at that time because of racing and country music. You know, there are some jingles that are stuck in my head for all time, and that's one of them. Yeah, it is one of them. No matter how many times they try to get away from it, it they always come back to that song, you know, which I'm glad that, that happened in the early it's 80s. It's a good problem to have, right? It's a great problem to have. <laughs> when I interviewed your wife, Kelly Lang, she... Who? The heart, she's this beautiful woman who seems to be now. sitting right next to you at your kitchen table, by the way. Here we are back again in your beautiful yeah. home. She told me that she had known you her whole life yeah. or most of her life. Yeah. But there was an age difference and you there were each is. married to other people yeah. until you finally came together. Did you have a little crush on her too? Sure. Tell God, me. Kelly was a cutie pie. We have a coffee cup in our cupboard of our kitchen when Kelly was just a kid with her mom and me, and we were backstage doing the Jamboree in the Hills in Wheeling, West Virginia. 50,000 people were there that day. And we had took a picture, and it's on that coffee cup. And to this day, I go look at that picture, and I go, I am right where I'm supposed to be. Because a long time ago, we were already on the journey, and just we just didn't know it yet. She had to go and experience her life with marriage and me, too. But we wound up together late in life, and it has been the most phenomenal part of my life, is to be able to share it with her. What is it like to sing with her? Oh, are you kidding me? It's a joy. I mean, I, I really, you know, you can have duet partners all day long, and some people you can harmonize with, and, 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 it, and it's good. But then there are sometimes with somebody that it just the the voice is gel. This the texture in her voice and hopefully and in mine really mesh well together. It just is a natural fit. Billboard puts you at number eighty seven on their list of the best country artists of all time. <laughs> As we come toward the end of our interview together, do you feel, T G, like an icon? Because no. you are. I wish I did. There's so many other people that I look up to who are icons, and I could never touch their bootstraps. Really. I just look at myself as a singer who's been very fortunate to have a job in music, singing, and so blessed to be able to make a living this way. There, I look at the Willie Nelsons and the Haggards and the Barry Gibbs and the Lionel Richies and people like that. They're the icons. They're the legends. I'm the new kid on the block compared to a lot of people in this business. But it's all a ladder, isn't it? We all are on that ladder. There's always going to be somebody that you look up to who's always going to be bigger than you are. And then there's always somebody down below you who's looking up to you. Jimmy Dean, a great singer and songwriter, his mother told him one time, said, Jimmy, you're a big star now. You're on TV every week. Millions of people are watching you. I want you to be a good boy on TV. 
I want you to do your best because I want you to remember always that there's always somebody watching you that wants to be just like you or be as good as you are. So always be a good person. Be an inspiration. Set the bar high for them. So iconic or legendary, I've never felt that way. Did Elvis ever tell you why he chose you, why he took you under his wing? And what would have happened if he hadn't? I would like to feel that I would still have found my way, maybe not as quick. And why he chose me, I just... Elvis was a very spiritual person. He had great radar for people. And maybe he saw something in me that he saw in himself as a kid who was wanting to do something in life. He told me one day, he said... Your career starting to take off, and I want to give you some advice if you'll hear me. And I said, yes, sir. He said, if you ever forget where you came from, you're never going to get where you want to go. And I applied that to my life. This series is called Country Music Success Stories. In your opinion, based on your experience, what does it take to be successful in country music? When you start out, you're your first fan. If you believe you can do it, you're your first fan. You can only hope that if you keep looking behind you, you'll see the numbers grow. You'll see more people follow you. And then someday you'll look out into a crowd and see thousands of people and know that you've arrived. What it takes, it takes dedication. It takes being unique. It takes being dedicated to your trade. It takes being accessible to the people that make you who you are. I have practiced a book that Kelly and I got into years ago called The Secret. I truly believe that you get back what you put out. And if you believe hard enough and you dream long enough, you will achieve success. You'll get back your efforts that you put into something. So you've just got to believe in yourself and never, ever, ever take no for an answer. And no matter how old you are in your life, if you're dreaming and you still want to do something in your life and you think it's past you because you're older, always remember that it's never too late to be who you might have been. T.G. Shepherd, I want to say thank you so much for being this week's guest on Country you, Music Candy. Success Stories. Thank you so much. Thank you, Candy. T.G. Shepard has been a big part of my world for almost 10 years. His wife, Kelly Lang, is one of my best friends, and we've shared so many experiences together. One of the many things I admire about T.G. is his outlook on setting a good example for artists who are just starting out in their career. In the interview you just heard, T.G. talks about the ladder to success. No matter where you are standing on that ladder, there will always be someone above you, a little more successful than you are, and there will always be someone coming along behind you who will be looking to you for guidance. No matter where you are standing on that ladder, you have a responsibility of some sort to be a good role model. If you want to have a career in the music industry, there are a lot of things that come along with that. One of them being the potential to have a level of fame and notoriety. I have been in this industry long enough to tell you that there are pros and cons to all of this. 
I've worked with artists who can barely walk into a room without everyone turning their heads. And I've also worked with artists who are just beginning to gain the attention of people who are interested in their lives and music. No matter what, you need to take all of the following into consideration. Number one, Google yourself. Do it. See what comes up, and if there's a list of things that you are proud to have the world take notice of, then you are A-OK. If there's anything questionable that you have the ability to control by taking it down, I encourage you to do so. Just like when an employer looks into your background online to see if you'd be a good fit for their job, your fans are going to do the exact same thing. Make sure you are proud of what the world is going to learn about you when they search your name. Number two, audit your own social media. Now we have all posted or been tagged in photos that are probably not showing us in the very best light. You have the ability to untag yourself and remove many of these photos. When you start to gain a little momentum in your career, you are more than likely going to start getting a little press. In my experience, the press loves to sift through social media, and they grab images from your accounts to share in their posts and articles, especially if they haven't been sent an official photo from your publicity team. It's fair game for them to use it if it's been posted on your account, so keep that in mind when you're going through all of it. Tip number three, picture yourself as a child. TG talked about Jimmy Dean and a line that his mother once said, Remember to always be a good boy. And it's so true. There will always be a person looking up to you, and you have a responsibility to be a good example for that person. Are you the person you'd want your younger self looking up to? Ask yourself that question frequently, and I hope the answer is always yes. Number four, setting a good example isn't just for the people looking up to you. It's also for the people who have come along before you. One of the biggest tools to success in the music industry is having a veteran vouch for you. We all have heroes, and there's nothing better than having the support of a person whose career you truly admire. So how do we gain the attention and support of these people? Be someone that they want to work with. Set a good example so that when they put their reputation on the line by giving you an opportunity, you never, ever let them down. Finally, my last bit of advice is to remember what it felt like when you were just starting out and lend a hand to those who are just getting their first step on that ladder. Elvis did this for TG. Without having a mentor like Elvis, who knows where TG's life would have taken him? And when TG got to a place where he was able to help others, he gave artists like Neil Diamond and many others, including myself, their big opportunity. One thing I know for sure is that you cannot have a successful career in music on your own. So treat others how you want to be treated and do your very best to constantly remember where you came from. Another great piece of advice from Music City mentor, J.C. Don Valeris. The ladder to success is real in any profession, including country music. For a free tip sheet from J.C., just go to candyoterry.com backslash country music podcast. Subscribe to JC's YouTube channel for insights and advice on how you can make it in Nashville. If you liked country music success stories, please leave a review and check out our new website, countrymusicsuccessstories.com. 
Follow us on social at Candy O'Terry and at JC Dawn Valeris. Our Facebook and IG handles are at Country Music Success Stories. Easy enough, right? Thank you to T.G. Shepard and his wife for welcoming us into their home. We've got more legends to meet and stories to tell. Until next time, this is Candy O'Terry saying thank you for listening to Country Music Success Stories. Music